This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 47 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead. We're live from western Ukraine and we start tonight with intensified attacks on the eastern part of this country. The Pentagon is cautioning that Russia's new offensive in the southeastern Donbass region, that itself has not yet begun in their estimation, but CNN's Nima Albagar visiting the northeastern town of Kharkiv today. That's just some 25 miles from the border with Russia and north of the Donbass region. Local military leaders report a barrage of Russian attacks over the last day there, mostly bombings, it appears. At least 11 civilians were killed, including a seven-year-old Ukrainian child. And even more horrific news from the key port city of Mariupol, which has been under a relentless Russian assault for weeks now. Ukrainian President Vol- Volodymyr Zelensky making this grim assessment today. Mariupol lies destroyed. Tens of thousands have been killed there, and still, the Russians won't end their offensive. They want to make an example out of Mariupol as a city ruined. Today I'm also learning that nine volunteer drivers working to evacuate Ukrainians from Mariupol have been detained by the Russian military, and as of now they remain missing. The head of the Ukrainian organization Help People says 10 drivers had been trying to get civilians out of that besieged city when their vehicles were stopped by Russian soldiers who demanded that the evacuees and the minibuses go to Russia. The drivers refused. They were detained. The head of the NGO lost contact with nine of those drivers. One of them was released and said they were interrogated with brute force, fed poorly, kept under appalling conditions. We should note, we cannot independently verify these claims. The group says it has been in contact with the Ukrainian government. CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward joins us now live from Kiev. And Clarissa, you traveled east of the capital of Kiev to towns that Russians had occupied for most of the war, but they have now withdrawn. What is the new reality on the ground there? Well, these people are just starting to emerge from a brutal nightmare, Jake. The harrowing accounts that you hear uh, in the towns that we visited of Novi and Starobikov. You can hear the air raid siren. That's not something we're hearing so often in Kiev these days. But in these two villages to the east of Kiev in the Chernigiv region, they reported at least six young men were executed uh, without any specific reason. One young woman is missing. There were arbitrary detentions. People were blindfolded, forced to remain in their cellars for weeks and weeks on end. As they described, absolute terror also coming under heavy bombardment, not having food, not having water, not having electricity, and only just now really starting to emerge from this nightmare and try to put their lives back together again. Ukrainian soldiers returning from the front, jubilant after a humiliating defeat for Russian forces in the north. 
In the neighboring villages of Stari and Novi Bikov, exhausted residents are emerging from their homes after five weeks of Russian occupation and the horrors that came with it. On day four of the war, this peaceful community became a front line. And nowhere was off limits. Russian forces transformed the local school into their base. Principal Natalia Vovok shows us the carnage that was left behind. She's saying that they were using this as a toilet as well. The main entrance is now spattered with blood, the scene of heavy fighting. Russian soldiers took cover in classrooms and treated their wounded with whatever they could find. So you can see they were eating here. These are some Russian military rations. Armia Rasi, it says. Walking the ravaged hallways, Vovik says she is still in a state of shock. What wasn't destroyed was looted. We are for education. Education is the future, our students, she says. It's such a shame that our occupiers didn't understand this. Why steal everything? This is a school. In several classrooms, there are signs that some of the Russian soldiers felt ashamed of their actions. A message on a chalkboard. So it says, forgive us, we didn't want this war. But forgiveness will be hard to come by here. At the local cemetery, Valentina takes us to the graves of six men, who authorities say were executed by Russian forces on the day they arrived. It's so hard to get over this, she says. They murdered them. Valentina says the Russians held on to the bodies for nine days before dumping them at the end of the village with instructions to bury them quickly. We dug very fast so they wouldn't shoot us, she says, but there was shooting over there and heavy shelling. Among the dead, her neighbors, brothers Igor and Oleg Yavon. Outside the family home, we meet their mother, Olga. For days, she thought her sons were in hiding, until a neighbor called her with the devastating news. The agony and the grief are still very raw. They were very good boys, she says. How I want to see them again. Do you have any idea why the Russians would kill your sons? Who knows? There was a bridge that was blown up and somebody shot at a Russian drone, she says. The Russians were searching the village and rounded them up on the street. Six boys. I don't know anything else. A few streets away, Katerina Andrusha is also looking for answers. Her daughter, Victoria, a school teacher, was taken by Russian soldiers on March 25th. They said they found information on her phone about their forces, she says. They told me she was in a warm house, that she was working with them, and she would be home soon. But Victoria never came home. We hope that she will get in touch, Katerina says. With somebody, somewhere. 
In this small community of 2000, it seems no street has been spared. The invaders marked their newly seized territory with crude graffiti and battle markings. Another Z on their fridge. But brave residents like Tamara carried out quiet acts of resistance. We kept it. We kept it, she says, showing us a Ukrainian flag given to her husband for his military service. We hid it. A bold risk in anticipation of this moment, when Russian troops would be forced to retreat. And the villages would finally be free. Now, a lot of those Russian troops who were responsible for these atrocities, not just obviously in Novi and Starybikov, but in a number of towns and villages and Kiev suburbs, as we have seen unfolding horrifying scenes, they will now be redeployed. They have left the country, they are heading east, and they will be part of this major offensive that Russia is preparing in the east, in the Donbass region. And so the fear is that these are not isolated events, that we may see more of these horrors, and that we will only really know about them, Jake, once Russian forces are pushed out once again. Because so many areas that continue to be under Russian control, these types of atrocities are playing out on practically a daily basis. And because journalists and aid workers and independent observers can't get into those areas, we are just not able to see the full scale of them, which is frankly a chilling thought, Jake. Clarissa Ward live in Kyiv. Thank you so much for that important report. To the northeast now in the city of Kharkiv, already facing relentless shelling from Russian troops, new satellite images warn of what might be on the horizon, an eight-mile-long convoy of Russian tanks and artillery to the east of that city. And now U.S. and European officials are warning Russia has appointed a new general to direct the war. He is known as, quote, the butcher of Syria. CNN's Nima Al-Bagher went to Kharkiv yesterday, or I'm sorry, today, to see the devastation firsthand and speak with the Ukrainian civilians who refused to leave despite the warnings from their own government. You can see all around us just the sheer devastation. Right here is the crater from where a bomb was dropped just two days ago. North of here, about 25 miles away, is inside Russia. That's where the Russian positions are shelling. That's where they're throwing devastation and death into places like this in Kharkiv, into civilian areas. Most of the people who have been able to evacuate have already left this city. Those that remain have told us it's because they believe that nowhere in Ukraine is safe. They wouldn't speak on camera because they're worried what will happen when and if the Russians finally arrive. And that is what U.S. and Ukrainian intelligence officials believe is about to happen. They believe that Russian troops are amassing. That was just a mortar strike as we were talking it's about the third or fourth that we've heard. It's coming from that direction over there. We're continuing to hear strikes. Imagine what it's like to live here. Imagine what it's like to be in one of these apartments, to have been unable to evacuate. Hearing that every day since this war began, knowing that you cannot evacuate, knowing that as one woman told us, there is nowhere safe 
here in Ukraine. U.S. and Ukrainian intelligence officials say that they can see Russian forces amassing just the other side of the border, some 25 miles to the north of Kharkiv. They believe that they are amassing to come here and to come here as soon as they can. Nemal Bagir, CNN, Kharkiv. And our thanks to Nima for that reporting from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Coming up, uh, building the case to punish Putin. We're going to go along for the ride here in Ukraine as investigators collect evidence of war crimes and talk to witnesses who describe the atrocities they saw firsthand. Plus, President Biden's candid conversation today with a U.S. ally who still has strong business ties with Russia. Stay with us. And we're back in Lviv where you can hear behind me air raid sirens have just gone off as happens relatively frequently during the week. Every day here in Ukraine brings new and horrifying pictures and stories of Russian atrocities. Murder, rape, genocide. I just got off the phone with an international lawyer earlier today. He had just been in Bucha where excavators had just discovered the grave of a woman and her two children, all three of them murdered. This was in the center of Bucha, right near where the Russians had put up a small station and next to a bigger grave where 40 bodies had been recovered over the last few days, he said. They're using drones to map the area. He said, it's just grim discovery after grim discovery. Over the weekend, the Ukrainian government said more than 4,000 individual criminal cases already have been opened by the county's prosecutor general. I'm going to talk to her in a moment, but first... Uh, our visit to a small town over the weekend where we met with some of the prosecutors who are methodically gathering evidence to make a case against Russia. About 90 minutes outside Lviv, at this pink school, up the stairs, past the paw prints, in this grade school classroom, there's a war crimes investigation underway. Ukraine's prosecutor general's office has deployed teams of investigators to villages and shelters nationwide with a mission, build a case strong enough to punish Russia in international courts. Ukrainians who have fled their homes and are willing to testify are asked to give detailed accounts of the language, uniforms, timing and actions of those who wronged them and destroyed their lives. The main idea of it is to officially set the status of these people as crime victims, for example, because they will get their right for compensation in the future. Irina Levenko was a chief ecological prosecutor in southeastern Ukraine before the invasion. But since March 28th, she's been collecting war stories from people sheltering in the West, even as her own village remains under Russian control. After I moved here to the relative safety in western Ukraine, I heard the call from the prosecutor general's office that this group would be created, so I went and joined. I didn't hesitate even for a second. Neither did Vasil Shevchuk, a witness from Bucha. It was important for me to tell, but also hard to tell. I'm still shaking. He's a longtime paramedic who says he helped the wounded back home. There were people watching the equipment moving along the street, and they were shot at. Two people were running into a cellar, and one of them was killed. Shevchuk, along with his family, sheltered at home for 10 days. Me, my son, and my brother were in the house, and my wife and my daughter were in the cellar. He says he had a pitchfork ready to defend his 13-year-old daughter and 25-year-old son. If they came into my house, I would use the pitchfork to kill them. 
if I got killed, it would be easier. I don't need to see my dearest suffering from the Russians. His friend in a neighboring village was not as lucky. She called me on the 26th or 27th of February. She has a mentally ill disabled son who went out on the street to look at the tanks and machines and they just shot him dead. How many people died and who knows how many will die? 63-year-old Natalia is a retiree from Kharkiv who testified today about the brutality she witnessed by Russian soldiers. I can't say a good word about these people. I can't even call them people. Maybe they have no brains at all. I don't know what they're thinking and how their mothers are bringing them up and giving meat to this war. She says she sheltered in her basement for six days. The windows have been blown out of her house and her sister is dead. She had a heart attack in the cellar where she was hiding because of the big stress. Still, Natalia is not sure her story or any reparation for it means much. How can they be punished? I don't think that they will be punished severely. Only God can punish them. What they have done, it cannot be repaid by any money. By now, most have seen horrific images of war crimes on CNN and other news outlets. But there is much more too horrifying to show, and much more news media have not seen that is being added into evidence. With a click, witnesses can upload videos and photos to this website created by the Prosecutor General's Office of Ukraine. The interviews, however, are done in person. People often cry during their questionings and so on, and it is much easier for the person who is in the same room to connect to the people being questioned and to find a better line of investigation. The sad truth? This part of the world has a lot of experience when it comes to such prosecutions. Lviv University, in fact, is the alma mater of the two lawyers who came up with the legal concepts of prosecutions at Nuremberg for genocide and for crimes against humanity. In fact, one of those former law students here, Hirsch Lauterpacht, was working with the Allied powers in 1942, preparing for those prosecutions. At the same time, members of his family here in Lviv were being rounded up and killed because they were Jewish. Those ideas and laws hammered out between U.S., British, and Soviet powers to go after Nazi crimes will now be used to go after the grandchildren of those Soviets. I call Russians cockroaches now, and I want to destroy these cockroaches. I want to crush them forever. Vasil says he would join the military if he could. I would fight, but my eyesight is minus nine. I wouldn't see. Instead, he's giving the court a clearer view of what the Russians have done. Yes, I can't help any other way. With us now from Kyiv is the Ukrainian Prosecutor General Irina Vendodiktova. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You personally toured Borodyanka. Tell us what you saw. Uh, good evening, dear friends. Thank you that you are having me. Yes, I was in Borodyanka, I was in Bucha several times. Tomorrow I will go to Bucha again. We are still exhumating dead bodies from the mass grave. Actually, what we see? We see horrors of war, uh, a lot of war crimes. Uh, actually, it is not only war crimes. Now we can say about um, uh, a lot of uh, crimes against humanity. 
And uh, you mentioned that we have more than 4,000 uh, cases of war crimes now. We are not proud, but we have 5,800 such cases. And with every day, uh, we started more and more such proceedings. 5,800, wow. Well, the, the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's office, your office just put out a statement saying, 183 children have been killed, 342 children injured since the invasion. You've said that at a lawyer, as a lawyer, you want to be professional, you don't want to be emotional. But I have to say that must be very difficult when you hear these stories and see these photographs that are so horrifying we can't share them on TV. It's, it's, it's extremely difficult, actually. You um, spoke about figures, but they are not correct. We can't count correct. For example, we don't understand what's happened in Mariupol just now and how many kids are dead inside Mariupol. That's why, of course, a lot of Ukrainian children are dead, a lot of injured. Uh, most of them are now uh, leave the Ukraine and try to save their lives abroad. And all this great pressure for whole life of Ukrainians, actually. It's very hard and uh, for us it's hard because it's still not finished. It's still uh, bombing, it's still shelling attacks. So, for example, now in Lugansk, in Donetsk, just now in Kharkiv, we have bomb attacks. The cases that you're building, more than 5,800 cases, and as you rightly point out, that doesn't include Mariupol or lots of other parts of the country that the Russians are still um, in effect in control of. Um, is this for prosecutions against individual Russian soldiers, prosecutions against Russian commanders, prosecutions against Vladimir Putin, or all of the above? Uh, all, uh I want to say that what about Mariupol? We started to proceed the common case. We don't know concrete facts, but common case, for example, as a bombing um, maternity hospital in Mariupol, drama theater in Mariupol, and others uh, cases we started because we have some refugees, you know, uh, that people could evacuate it from Mariupol. That's why we knew some facts from their witnesses. What about our suspects? Actually, we understand that our national jurisdiction is very important for us. We want to prosecute these war criminals in our Ukrainian courts named by Ukraine. But, of course, for us, the, our other approach, it is a line of international criminal court. What we have now in Ukraine, we do everything under international humanitarian law, under common international law. That's why we have now more than 500 suspects. Uh, concrete individuals, it is top politicians, top militaries, top propaganda agents of Russia Federation who, uh, whom we suspect absolutely legal in started this war, of uh, continuing this war. And um, of course, uh, uh, we understand that three persons in the Russian Federation now is under functional immunity for our national legislation. It is president, 
no, when he's still president, then Minister of Foreign Affairs and Prime Minister. This is rule. That's why we understand this is uh, people for uh, this period is uh, uh, sorry, are uh, uh, under um, functional immunity, but from other side, absolutely possible to take them to responsibility by instruments of international criminal courts. That's why we document evidences for all um, big fish or what really do everything for this war and uh, who wanted this war, who, who started this war, and who continued this war. Ukrainian Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Coming up next, the sensitive connection that has compelled so many people in Poland to help Ukrainian refugees any way they possibly can. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead, the United Nations says the number of refugees who have fled Ukraine because of Vladimir Putin's ruthless, brutal invasion has surpassed four and a half million people. At least two and a half million of those refugees have crossed into neighboring Poland, where Jewish families have their own haunting memories of war and genocide. And as Kyung La reports, many of those same families are opening their homes to Ukrainians seeking shelter and safety. The Jewish quarter is just almost over here is stuck. This is more than Jan Jeeper's Warsaw neighborhood. The white one? Oh, the white one. It's a path to his family history. That's the building when the, my grandma was born and raised. Jeeper lives a block away from where his Jewish great-grandparents lived before the Holocaust. That's my grandma and her mom. In the chaos of World War II, Zofia Poznanska was separated from her husband and child. The Nazis executed her at the Treblinka death camp. Of the six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust, around half were killed in Poland's concentration camps. But Jebert's great-grandfather, Julian Poznanski, escaped the horror, sheltered by a non-Jewish family. We are alive because someone helped us. And um, thanks to that, I can help other people. The apartment is one-bedroom apartment. Jeepert's home has little space. We are sleeping over here, and uh, that used to be our bed. And we gave those bed to our Ukrainian guests. But it's enough to share with the Ukrainian mother and child. The third family Jeepert has taken in since the war began. I just felt it's part of me, and uh, I don't know if it's faith or, or tradition. Uh, it's just part of me. I have to do it. It's our time to do what we needed to have done for us 80 years ago. Michael Shudrick is chief rabbi of Poland. In Warsaw, the Jewish community has plunged in to help in this humanitarian crisis, offering everything from childcare to food and housing, counseling, and Polish lessons. Shudrick says Jewish philanthropies, mostly American, have donated about $100 million to help Ukrainian refugees, no matter where they are or whatever faith they practice. The effort is centering on Poland, where in World War II, the majority did not help. Half of the Jews killed during the Shoah, the Holocaust, were from Poland. 
So given that complicated history, how does that motivate the Jewish community today? It clearly has an added meaning for those who are Jewish, understanding that this is what my grandparents needed. And if we still have somewhere in our hearts a sadness that more people didn't help, it needs then to push us to do more to help now. You're volunteering here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Jan Jebert, he feels his country changing as Poland welcomes almost two and a half million Ukrainians. His great-grandmother's home is now a shelter for refugees. Do you think about what would happen if more of your family had been protected, had been taken in? It's a great question. I would hope that there will be someone like me helping my grandparents, great-grandparents, and my cousins during the Holocaust. Yeah, that would be, that would be wonderful. I would have much greater family next to me. To have the great big family in Warsaw, Jewish family, and um, which survived the war, that's one of, that would be most beautiful, beautiful thing, definitely. Yeah. Well, that $100 million raised worldwide, again, predominantly by American uh, Jews, that money is going into the child care and the language lessons that you saw in the story. And I spoke to those women who are being helped. None of them are Jewish. One of these those Ukrainian refugees, she didn't even know that it was a Jewish organization that was helping her out. So after seeing the worst of humanity in Ukraine, here in Poland, Jake, they are seeing the grace of the Jewish community. Jake. Kangla in Warsaw, Poland, thank you so much. Appreciate that report. At the White House today, President Biden acts after months of pressure to do more to address gun violence. His plan to tackle what are called ghost guns. That's next. In our politics lead, President Biden speaking candidly with Indian Prime Minister Modi in a virtual meeting today. That's what we're told by the White House, pressing him to take a hard line against Russia's invasion. The critical meeting comes as India tries to maintain a neutral stance on Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine. India is continuing to buy Russian oil. India abstains from UN votes condemning the brutal assault on Ukraine. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us now live from the White House. And Caitlin, a senior administration official told CNN that there was this candid exchange of views during today's meeting. Tell us more what you're learning about it. Yeah, Jake, Russia is really looming over this entire conversation that President Biden was having with the Indian prime minister. As you noted, they're trying to get them basically off the fence when it comes to this Russian invasion because they have abstained from those key votes at the U.N. They've continued to snap up Russian oil. And so during this call today, we are told that President Biden told Prime Minister Modi he did not believe it was in India's interest to continue buying this Russian oil and the quantities that they have. Though The White House has downplayed just how much oil they are getting from India. But he also sought to reassure him on the concerns that India has about how much military hardware they get from Russia, saying that there will be basically alternative methods to get that and to continue that if they were to speak out uh, against this invasion, which they have declined to do so far, Jake, because the little preview of the call that we heard so far today that reporters were in the room for, you heard the prime minister talking about these atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine, saying that they are very worrying for India. But, Jake, he hesitated to directly call out Russia 
Russia for committing those atrocities. And so it's kind of been this delicate balancing act where you're seeing the White House work this behind the scenes, but they haven't been applying that much pressure publicly, even though at times they have expressed some frustration over how India has handled this. And Kaylin, uh, this afternoon, the administration announced their new uh, nominee for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. They also talked about new regulations on what they call ghost guns. These are untraceable, essentially homemade weapons without serial numbers made from parts that you can purchase online. The president spoke about these new rules a short while ago. Tell us what he said. Yeah, he was talking about some of the criticism that he's gotten for these new rules that have been working their way through the system for about a year now. There are new rules that would clarify those parts of those guns that you can either order online or print at home using a 3D printer and then assemble yourself as firearms because they want to make them better or easier to regulate, easier to trace, since, as you noted, oftentimes they don't have a serial number with them. And the president talked about some of the criticism he's gotten for these new rules. The NRA called this rule... I'm about to announce extreme, <laughs> extreme. But let me ask you, is it extreme to protect police officers, extreme to protect our children, extreme to keep guns out of the hands of people who couldn't even pass a background check? Look, the idea that someone on a terrorist list could purchase one of these guns is extreme. It isn't extreme, just basic common sense. Jake, he also called on Congress to pass a broader gun control legislation. Of course, that is something that is not even close to happening so far. But he did talk today about a new nominee for to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. This is his second try to get a nominee through and confirmed by the Senate. Of course, they had to withdraw the last person President Biden nominated after it was clear he was not going to get enough congressional support. So they are going to try again this time, Jake. We should note, though, there has not been a confirmed director of the ATF in seven years, though the White House is hoping they'll be successful this time around, Jake. Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, the loud late night screams in a city locked down. What might be the breaking point for the people of Shanghai, despite a record spike in COVID cases? Stay with us. In our health lead, China's government is co coping with a coronavirus surge that is getting worse despite it's rather harsh lockdown policy. Shanghai reported more than 26,000 new cases on Sunday. That's the fourth consecutive day the new cases have topped 20,000. Because we're talking about the Chinese government, which does not believe in transparency in any way, we do not know if these higher case numbers are also resulting in higher numbers of hospitalizations and deaths, which, of course, are the key indicators, far more so than cases. This spread comes despite a strict, even draconian lockdown in this city of 25 million people. CNN's David Culver is among those forced into lockdown in Shanghai. And David, people are shouting from their balconies. They can't stand it anymore. They're running out of food. It sounds just awful. And Jake, the videos that are emerging from across this city, they say it all. I'll pause here. You can listen to some of the frustration and anger and pain that's being evoked. People sealed inside their homes. You know, this has been like no other lockdown. The scale alone of the population here puts this beyond Wuhan in 2020. And most shocking is that this is happening here in the country's cosmopolitan and affluent financial hub. The door behind me, that's my exit to the alley. And a couple of nights ago, I actually heard them taping my door along with my neighbor's doors, placing a paper seal so as to keep it closed. 
Some buildings with positive cases, they're actually locked from the outside with a bicycle lock or even padlocks. It's this strict containment effort that's gone on for more than three weeks now that's led to massive food shortages. And it's really difficult to source basic necessities. You've got stores closed, delivery drivers who, like us, are also in lockdown. So neighbors are now having to come together. They're trying to source directly from suppliers, buying in bulk. And there have been, for some, a a few government handouts, but certainly not enough. It's led to the really harsh demands from people saying, Jake, that they are starving. Those are some of the the literal words that we're hearing. We are starving. We are starving. Beyond the the health and psychological impacts, um, David, what's the wider economic impact? Yeah, well, this is, Jake, China's uh, leading financial center, and some of its largest sea and airports are here. Several weeks of this have really already shocked the economy, and they place more strain on on global supply chains, not to mention this is going to further fuel inflation. But it's impacted hundreds of international companies, too, many of which have regional headquarters based right here in Shanghai. And Tesla's Gigafactory, for example, that's come to a halt. Apple suppliers not able to operate. And Starbucks, another American company, likely to take a big hit from closures in this massive metropolis alone. And yet much of what's happening here, many argue, it's really not based in health security, Jake, so much as a politicized approach by Beijing to save face and keep control. David Culver in Shanghai, thanks. Coming up, a media executive here in Ukraine spent years trying to fight Russian disinformation online. Now he's taking that fight to a whole new level and trying to confront the Russians face to face. And he'll join us next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 47 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with the Russian assault on eastern Ukraine. But the Pentagon cautions the new offensive expected in the southeastern Donbass region. That, they say, has not yet begun. In the northeast, Kharkiv and its surrounding regions saw heavy Russian shelling overnight. At least 11 are dead, including a 7-year-old child. In Mariupol, Ukraine's president says Russian forces are trying to turn the port city into a ruined city, adding, quote, tens of thousands have been killed after six weeks of heavy Russian bombardment. Zelensky continues to urge civilians to evacuate the region, but many people are getting trapped in these areas of fighting, and Russian forces are blocking access to some towns. Today, I'm also learning nine volunteer drivers working to evacuate Ukrainians out of Mariupol have been detained by the Russian military. They've been missing since late March. We cannot independently verify these claims, but the volunteer group called Help People has been in contact with the Ukrainian government, and that is the information they shared with them and with us. Meantime, U.S. and European officials are warning Russia has now appointed a new general to direct the war after troops failed to take Kyiv. He is known as, quote, the Butcher of Syria. Here with me now in Lviv is CNN's Phil Black to discuss it all. Uh, and Phil, let's start with that new uh, Russian general. His name, Alexander Dvornikov. He's been dubbed the, the quote, uh, butcher of Syria. Uh, a U.S. senior defense official says that that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that Russia is, quote, poised for greater success. But from where I sit, it definitely means that the Ukrainian people might be feeling even more pain. Perhaps he has a reputation for brutal effectiveness. You could say there's been plenty of brutality in, in Russia's campaign so far. No, no shortage of that. But effectiveness has been lacking. Uh, either way, I think regardless of who's in command here, the Ukrainians know that this is going to be a very different, different, different fight 
in the east. It's going to be a more consolidated Russian force, one where they have more firepower, more raw strength focused into a specific geographic area. But they'll be going up against Ukrainians, uh, the most experienced Ukrainian troops. And Ukraine is confident they can hold out if they get the support they need from Western allies. Yeah, the military uh, weapons and such. Today, Putin uh, met with the Austrian chancellor, uh, Karl Niehammer, for 75 minutes in Moscow. Niehammer says it was not a friendly visit. He's not particularly optimistic from the talks. What, what do you make of this face-to-face uh, meeting? Well, it's the first European leader to meet w- with Putin since the start of the war. Austria is not a member of NATO, politic- uh, militarily neutral, but as the, as the chancellor, uh, chancellor says, not morally neutral. This is a chancellor who only yesterday was walking the streets of Bucha, seeing for himself the aftermath of Russia's occupation. And so his messages to Putin were blunt. Effectively, this is on you. There must be accountability for war crimes. The EU is united that sanctions will continue uh, for as long as Russia's war of aggression will continue. So not a friendly visit by any means. And today, Ukraine's foreign minister said it would be extremely difficult to even think about negotiations with Russia uh, after all the horrific events of Bucha, the train station attack at Kramatorsk. Is there any room for diplomacy, given the tactics the Russians are using? I think there's no mood for diplomacy at the moment. Neither side is willing to make concessions. Really, both sides are still trying to create realities on the ground that would allow them to force concessions at the negotiating table. It's something that Ukraine and its allies have been open about, really. They think their only way of having leverage through negotiations is to inflict pain on the battlefield, to prove to Russia that its goals are unachievable or that they will come at unbearable cost. Russia's doing the same, really. It's trying to conquer territory that it will not give up easily. And so for all of these reasons, it's why this battle in the East is potentially so crucial to a potential outcome. Yeah, the, the difference, of course, being the Ukrainians are trying to kill Russian troops and the Russian indeed. troops are trying to kill Ukrainian citizens, women, children, seniors. Yeah, indeed, a key difference. All right, Phil Black, thank you so much. Let's go to Kiev now. CNN's uh, Fred Pleitkin. Uh, Fred, Russian troops may not have been able to capture the capital of Kiev and its surrounding neighborhoods, at least not yet. But what they left behind mm-hmm. was absolutely horrific. And you've, you've been bearing witness yourself. You've seen streets littered with bodies. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jake. And it really is something that continues until now. This isn't going to be some sort of uh, fast cleanup that the authorities are trying to undertake here. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think right now the uh, authorities here around Kiev, the people here around Kiev uh, and to the north of Kiev also, they're finding out that the scale of the destruction is a lot bigger than anybody would would have thought. And also that populations that live through all of this, they're extremely traumatized. I mean, there's so many people that we come across who stayed behind and who just break out into tears the moment that they tell us some of the awful things that they've witnessed. And then, of course, some of the things that the authorities are finding here, some of the dead bodies uh, are truly uh, a devastating and awful sight. And so we do have to warn our viewers in the report that you're about to see, there's some very graphic and disturbing video. Let's have a look. The tour is a sad routine for the body collectors in the outskirts of Kiev. Finding corpses has become eerily normal here. A house destroyed by an artillery strike, a body burned beyond recognition. A mangled car wreck, two bodies burned beyond recognition. A house that was occupied by Russian troops, an elderly lady dead in the bedroom. These bodies evidence of a brutal Russian occupation and then a fierce fight by the underdog Ukrainians to drive them out. 
A fight 81-year-old Katarina Barashvolets witnessed up close in her village. There were explosions, explosions from all sides. It was scary, she tells me. I am in my house. I cross myself and lie down. And then I hear how it thundered and all the windows in the house were broken. The Ukrainians tell us the Russian troops didn't even bother collecting most of their own dead. More than a week after Vladimir Putin's army was pushed out of here, they showed us the body of what they say was a Russian soldier still laying in the woods. And that's not all they've left behind. This demining unit says they found hundreds of tons of unexploded ordnance in just a matter of days, including cluster munitions like this bomblet, even though the Russians deny using them. These weapons are extremely dangerous for civilians who might accidentally touch them, the commander says. There are about 50 such elements in one bomb, he says. This is a high-explosive fragmentation bomb to kill people, designed just to kill people. They blow up the cluster bomblet on the spot and then move the heavier bombs to a different location for a massive controlled explosion. The body collecting, the mine sweeping, and the clearing up of wreckage are just starting in this area. And yet this pile of demolished vehicles, both military and civilian, already towers in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. If you had to picture Russia's attempt to try and take the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, it would probably look a lot like this. Destruction on a massive scale and absolutely nothing to show for it. Russia's military was humiliated by the Ukrainians and caused a lot of harm in the process. And they've devastated scores of families. At Irpin Cemetery, the newly widowed weep at funerals for the fallen. Alla Krotkich, her husband Ihor, fought alongside their 21-year-old son in Irpin and died in his arms on the battlefield. Yulia Shkutina, wife of Dimitro Pasko, killed by a Russian mortar shell. And Tetyana Litkina, her husband Alexander, promised he'd come back in a few hours, but was killed defending this neighborhood. I'm very proud of him, Tatyana says. He's a hero. We have many people in Ukraine who have not fled and are defending their homes. Sasha died just 200 meters from our house where we lived. Laying the dead to rest, another sad task they've become all too efficient at performing in this area. Close by, the next funeral is already underway. And there will certainly be many more there in Irpin and, of course, in so many other places uh, around Ukraine and around this area north of Kiev as well, Jake. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things we have to talk about, there is obviously a lot of sadness, a lot of anger there among the people, but there is also a lot of resilience as well. One of the other things that we're actually seeing here in the Kiev area is more and more people returning to here who had fled the area, trying to breathe some life into some of the places that have been abandoned since the Russians invaded this country, Jake. Mm. And Fred, uh, the, that's the all clear from the, uh, from the uh, alarm we got before, the air raid siren. Uh, Fred, did the people there believe that ultimately there will be justice? Well, look, I, I think that they're following very closely some of the investigations that are going on. Of course, you had the prosecutor general uh, on uh, in the previous hour, and that was that was you know something that's really important for the people here uh, to also hear and to see that these investigations are going on. That some of them might happen internationally as well. But I think very few people believe that any uh, people in the Russian leadership are going to be held to account uh, and are going to have to stand up for some of the things that they've done. 
what we hear from people like the lady in our report there is they want vengeance on the battlefield. They want Ukraine uh, to not give an inch of territory. They want to keep fighting for their independence. And they certainly see the ones who have fallen so far as heroes to this country. So if anything, there's more resolve. And one of the things that one person told us, I asked them, you know, what's your message to Vladimir Putin? I asked them, and she quite out front, you said to me, I want Vladimir Putin dead, Jake. Fred Plaikin live in Kiev. Thanks so much for that report. Joining us now to discuss uh, is Maxime Shubenko. He's the CEO of VoxCheck. That's an independent fact-checking organization. He's also currently serving in the Ukrainian territorial defense. Maxime, thanks for joining us. So your company was already providing this important service, fact-checking Russian disinformation about the war in Ukraine. Um, so why was it important for you to also join the Ukrainian armed forces? Yeah, first of all, thank you. And a little fact-checking of your words. Uh, I'm a CEO, not Vokshek, uh, but of Vox Ukraine. Uh, it's, Vokshek is a part of Vox Ukraine, actually, fact-checking unit of polo analytical organization. And yes, before the war, um, uh, for starting from 2015, uh, we was working with disinformation, disinformation narratives, uh, myths, fakes coming not only from Russia, but also from other countries, primarily Russia and China, actually. But yeah, in the last two years, we was working with Facebook and continue to work with the Facebook, uh, countering this disinformation. There are a lot of it right now. Uh, I think uh, USA also got <clears throat> gotten the part uh, of this uh, of this disinformation. So you fought against the Russians as they were advancing on Kyiv. What was that like? Uh, I think it's, it was, first of all, really scary because the first fight was on my first night in territory defense forces. Actually, I was, I was, don't know what I'm doing, what, what we're going to do. And a lot of guys with me was actually uh, first First, uh, first time they took a gun uh, in their hands. That was really scary. But now we are trained enough to fight against Russian troops. So I, I hope that they will understand this and they will move back. What's your unit doing now that the Russians have withdrawn from around Kiev? What does your day-to-day look like? Uh... A great question. It's uh, we are now a part of our. I'm actually. I want to introduce my uh, my brother in arms. I'm in 2009 uh, battalion of territorial defense of Kiev, third uh, platoon. It's not a secret information. And uh, for now, uh, we are in Kiev. We are. At, at this moment of time, we are transferring from the territory defense in the in the army of Ukraine, in the newly created uh, division uh, of army, and all our platoon is transferring to the army because we are all already got an experience in fights. We got uh, actually a few weeks ago we was uh, in the Irpin, Bucha, and Mashun. Uh, it's Mashun, actually, it's a city near Irpin and Bucha, which was a critical for Kiev defense because um, in case Russian troops uh, get in through Mashun, if they 
go through it, then they uh, they uh, can just open the road to Kiev, the open road to Kiev. So yeah, that that was our duties at that moment of time. Now we are actually training every day. Um, and waiting for transferring and waiting to go to the east or south of Ukraine where the uh, hot spots are right mm. now. So we know the Russians are constantly spreading disinformation about their actions in Ukraine, starting with their assertion that they were never going to invade. How does your company go about fact-checking uh, all the lies that the Kremlin tells? How do you go about revealing the truth? Yeah, actually, we we work uh, work check and work Ukraine. We closely work with uh, some. Um, I can't tell with uh, exactly the name of organization, but with a government organization from the U.S. Uh, and the project we start before the war was actually how Russia spread disinformation not only in Ukraine but also in such countries in Europe as uh, Germany, as Italy, as France, and now we are continuing to do this project and um, we are actually finishing this project. Uh, And uh, another, I can say, main uh, part of our work in disinformation field is work with the Facebook. Uh, There is a third-party checking program in which we are participating uh, from the side of Ukraine from 2015, uh, sorry, 2020, I think. Yeah, we started in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, where we check in information in uh, in a Facebook in Ukrainian segment. Now we are found in about 150 fakes per, uh, per month, uh, and mostly 90% of them is Russian disinformation, and we're trying to uh, to market them as as manipulation, false, and so on. So it's uh, it's a big part of our work, of our daily work as an organization. Yeah. Uh, my colleagues now working and doing the, a lot of a lot of work because I'm I, I, I only can help them with my advices, with uh, some tactics, operational work, right. and so on. But yeah, they doing yeah. the work. By- Maxime Skubenko. Maxim Skubenko, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it, and best of luck. Um, all the bodies in Bucha, the train station attack. The Kremlin not only denies committing these war crimes, wait until you hear the lies about these attacks that are told to the Russian people. Plus, the big decision coming up in less than two weeks that could change the Western approach to Ukraine from America's longest ally. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, another prominent Putin critic has been detained as the Kremlin's unrelenting crackdown on dissent within Russia continues. Vladimir Karamerza, who's already managed to survive two suspected poisonings, was detained outside of his Moscow apartment today, a Russian opposition politician tells CNN. This clampdown comes as Russia engages in a fierce propaganda war to justify its unprovoked, brutal invasion and to try to cover up the growing number of atrocities and massacres being committed against Ukrainian civilians. CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter now reports on the lies and misinformation coming out of Russian media. 
Here's what Russia's upside-down media world is like. They claim the train station missile strike in eastern Ukraine was committed by Ukraine, despite all evidence to the contrary. This post from the Foreign Affairs Ministry, parroted by pro-Russian accounts on social media, claims the Kyiv regime wants more of its own civilians to die. Russians who get their truth from the state media are living in an alternate reality. Every day, Madeleine Roach watches the morning news on Channel One, a top state-run TV channel in Russia. The Russian army is portrayed as triumphant, as not sustaining any losses, any casualties, and is certainly not committing any atrocities. Meanwhile, according to the state media, it's the Ukrainian army committing um, atrocities, killing civilians, um, sustaining heavy losses, and losing territory to the Russian forces. They deny, they deflect, and, according to Julia Davis, creator of the Russian Media Monitor, they portray the Russian armed forces as liberators. They are presenting it like the Ukrainians want them there, they want to be liberated, they have been oppressed by this so-called Nazi government, and they welcome Russia's intervention. Independent news coverage disproves this. But there is almost none of that left in Russia. Essentially, journalism has been banned now in Russia. The Atlantic's Anne Applebaum notes that so many journalists have fled the country. So the, the true story of what goes on in Russia is now getting harder and harder to tell. Russians are thus even more dependent on state-owned TV, CNN's Nick Robertson says. It's no surprise that so many people are just following along with the Kremlin's lines. It's the easiest thing for them to do. They don't see an alternative. They feel powerless. And it's information that they've been fed year upon year upon year by Putin and by the Soviet leadership back uh, in those days. The government is creating this sort of hermetically sealed bubble um, that doesn't allow for information that contradicts the government to, to enter. Roche is now writing a daily report for NewsGuard, making a record of the false claims. She says others need to know what it's like. Russians would have every reason to feel proud based on what they're seeing um, on the state TV. Call it motivated reasoning, the human brain's ability to rationalize almost anything. Maybe in this case, the better term is propaganda poisoning. Despite all the real reporting coming out of Ukraine, experts say state-run TV out of Moscow has a very firm grip on Russian public opinion. Jake? CNN's Brian Stelter, thank you so much for that report. Our CNN fact-checker Daniel Dale joins us now live to break down some specific examples of Russian misinformation that he's tracking. And Daniel, the Russian government and its allies, they've been trying to deceive people. They've been lying about the, the killing of civilians in Bucha outside Kiev. What can you tell us about the misinformation? Jake, the Russian government has claimed that not a single local resident was killed while Russian troops were in Bucha, and that evidence to the contrary was staged or fake or a hoax. And Jake, these claims are frankly ridiculous. They're totally false. It has been conclusively demonstrated that civilians were indeed killed while Russian troops were in Bucha, and witnesses say by Russia. Let's walk through some of the Russian deception here. I want to show people just how hard Russia and its allies have been working to trick people. In early April, videos emerged of dead people on a street outside in Bucha. And so Russian officials quickly settled on a way to cast doubt on these videos. They claimed that one of the videos showed that a person lying on the road was actually alive, that their hand was moving. But journalists quickly proved that the so-called moving hand 
was actually just a drop of water moving across the windshield of the car from which this video was filmed. The journalists also found still photos of that same person on the road, clearly deceased. So, end of story? Well, not for the Russian government. It also suggested that the bodies only appeared on this Bucha road days after Russian troops withdrew from the area. So they were hinting that the bodies had been placed there by Ukrainian forces. But that is, of course, false too. Satellite photos prove there had been bodies on that road for more than two weeks of the period when Russian troops were present. So now, end of story, surely with satellite photo proof? No, again, pro-Russia social media accounts and a pro-Russia supposed fact-check site, not a very good site, then started casting doubt on the satellite photos, claiming that the satellite company in question wasn't even taking pictures over Bucha on March 19th, the date on some of these photos. But the company was taking pictures on that day, either out of malice or out of ignorance. The people doing the so-called fact-check just weren't properly doing their online archive search. So, Jake, this is exhausting for me to keep track of, and this is my full-time job. So I'm sure that regular people around the world find it exhausting themselves to keep track of. And I think that's the point. I think what Russia is doing is throwing so much nonsense at the wall that either some of it sticks and gets believed, or just that it all tires people out, that people get so confused and overwhelmed by everything being contested, even the most obvious seeming of facts, that they throw up their hands and say, I don't know what's true, I can't keep track of all this. And that's tough. And I think we as journalists have to fight hard against that. Absolutely. And this deception obviously goes far beyond Bucha. A Russian state TV channel also claimed last week, last week it had video showing Ukrainians were getting ready to use a dummy as a fake corpse. Tell us about that. Yeah, th this was also ridiculous. More, more of the same kind of nonsense. So this video aired on the state-run channel Russia 24, claiming to catch Ukrainians in the act of preparing to stage a Russian killing, pretending that Russia killed a civilian. In fact, this video was taken in Russia, not Ukraine, and it was from the filming of a television show. We know this because someone who worked on that TV production crew spoke out on Facebook and Instagram about the misuse of the footage by Russia 24. They made clear they were filming in Russia. They joked about how their dummy had become Russia's most famous dummy. So, Jake, it's a pretty endless stream of false claims from Russia and its online supporters, and a lot of it is, is quite brazen. CNN's Daniel Dale with a vital fact check. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a family that left Russia right as Putin ordered his invasion and now fear their hiding spot could be a future target of Russian forces. Stay with us. And our world lead as the Russian invasion of Ukraine rages on citizens in neighboring Georgia. The Republic of Georgia are anxiously watching what's unfolding. The former Soviet state was attacked by Russia 14 years ago. And Putin's forces still occupy much of that country. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports for us now from Tbilisi, Georgia's capital, many there worry they could be Putin's next target if he succeeds here in Ukraine. Gia was born in Georgia. He just didn't think he'd be back here quite yet. His family moved to Russia 30 years ago, fleeing the Georgian Civil War. It was in Moscow they built a life, where he met his wife Anya and where his kids were born. He's told them the truth about the horrors of the current war in Ukraine and says he worried what would happen if one of their teachers in Russia echoed Putin's propaganda that this war is just. He knows what's really going. Yeah. And he will say, no, you are not right. And it could be problems for him. You were worried that your son would have yes. problems? Yes. Wow. So the family left for Georgia just a few days after the war began. 
Though Anya isn't completely convinced that they will be safe here either. If no one stops Putin, she says, he can easily go both to Georgia and to the West. And she is not alone in her fears. Georgians have a long, brutal history with Russia. Russian troops invaded in 2008, and thousands of troops remain in two breakaway provinces of Georgia. And in 1989, in the capital of Tbilisi, nearly two dozen protesters were killed and hundreds were injured by Soviet troops as they advocated for independence. People gathered over the weekend outside the parliament building in Tbilisi to mark the anniversary of that massacre. Georgian flags this year joined by those from Ukraine for what's now called National Unity Day. It's a big day each year in Georgia, but this year it's made even more important given what we're seeing Russian troops do in Ukraine. Decades of Russian aggression here have left deep scars, and many now see parallels between Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what they fear could happen in Georgia. Russia posed a deadly threat for Georgian independence, for our sovereignty, for our territorial integrity. Do you think that there's a chance that Russia could invade Georgia again? Yes, this threat is always. Every country across Europe, not only Georgia, is under threat. Back in their apartment, Gia and his family wholeheartedly agree. They told us they don't want their children and grandchildren to grow up in what they call North Korea 2.0. And for that, grandmother Galina says people must understand a crucial point. She says the whole world must understand that Ukraine is now really not fighting just for itself. It's fighting for everyone. And the whole world must unite and stop Putin because he won't stop with Ukraine. And the family told us that before they left Moscow, in the beginning days of the war, they were talking to some of their friends in Moscow and they said that they were shocked to hear from people they considered themselves close to that they were repeating the lines of Russian propaganda, that the Ukrainian government was fascist, that they were drug addicts, as we so often hear from Russian state media. And that, the family tells us, played a role in their decision to leave. Jake? Matt Rivers, thanks so much. Coming up, the spike in COVID cases in the U.S. and the key factor that might explain why many cities have resisted bringing back mask mandates. Stay with us. Turning now to our health lead, even though hospitalizations and deaths in the U.S. are down compared with last week, new COVID cases now are rising more than half in more than half of states, although still at relatively low levels overall. The new White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha, says the uptick is not yet cause for alarm. We are seeing case numbers rise uh, in New England, here in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, we're going to see this, right? In the pandemic, we're going to see moments where cases go up, cases go down. If we were to see a huge spike in cases, we'd also see that eventually trickle into hospitalizations. We're not seeing that. Hospitalizations right now at the lowest level since March of 2020. Let's bring in CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, even though hospitalizations are at the lowest point since March 2020, which is rather significant, the U.S. is still averaging more than 500 COVID deaths a day. Do we know anything about these these people who are dying? Are they overwhelmingly unvaccinated? Do they have comorbidities? 
Joe, um, Jake, we do know that these 500 people who are dying per day, they do tend to be elderly and even more so, they tend to be unvaccinated. Let's take a look at those numbers. If you look at CDC data from January and February, what you'll see is that folks who are 75 and older have a 10 times higher death rate compared to folks who are younger, who are 50 to 64. The unvaccinated have about nine times higher risk of dying from COVID than the fully vaccinated and the same unvaccinated folks have a 21 times higher risk of dying than those who are fully vaccinated and boosted. So, you know, you can't do anything about your age. You, there's not a whole lot you can do about your underlying conditions. And those people are also more vulnerable. But of course, as we've been saying for, you know, over a year now, get vaccinated. That does make a difference. Get vaccinated, get boosted. Many uh, testing sites are shutting down right. uh, because of a lack of demand. Um, is that going to be a problem? You know, right now it makes sense in some ways, right? City and state health departments saying, you know, people aren't showing up for tests. We have limited resources. We need to close some of these down. So in the short term, you can see where that comes from. But here's the concern. This has been a very unpredictable virus. There have been times, probably about a year ago, where we were thinking, oh, listen, if you're vaccinated, you know, you're fine. Take off your mask. Everything's okay. And it didn't turn out that way. And so here's the problem. Jake, if another variant comes around, if hospitalizations and deaths and cases start to go up again, we will want those testing sites back. So hopefully, as they're being closed down, it's with an eye towards how do we reopen them? How can we remain nimble so that we can have these testing sites if they are needed again? Because you know what? There's a real possibility that they will be needed again. So, Elizabeth, the great city of Philadelphia uh, is bringing back indoor mask mandates as of April 18th. Um, what's going on there? Will people follow advice like that? You know, Jake, your favorite city, right? And you actually might be able to shed some light. What do you think? Will the people of Philadelphia obey mask mandates? I don't know much about Philadelphia, but just in general, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get people to obey mask mandates again. Maybe if it's for something super specific, like when I've been on airplanes, people for the most part are quite good about wearing masks because they know that sort of in this instance, they're supposed to, or when they're in airports, but it, ne it would need to be for something, I think, very specific in order for people to wear masks again and just say, hey, to just say, hey, whenever you're in a restaurant or a store or wherever, wear a mask. I, I think that's going to be very difficult to do. And you certainly don't want to put a mandate out there and not enforce it. That really sends the wrong message. It, it sends the message that a mandate doesn't mean anything. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Turning to our money lead, Americans are bracing for even higher prices. In fact, inflation fears measured in a survey released today shows U.S. consumers are more worried about the cost of living now than they have been in almost a decade. Rent, medical expenses, and gas prices are top of mind. Joining us now to discuss, senior data reporter Harry Enten. Hey, Harry, good to see you. So jobs numbers looking pretty good. Uh, how do Americans feel about the economy overall? Yeah, this is a really just mixed economy. It's kind of very confusing, right? If you look at the unemployment rate, it's below 4%. We're gotten back to an unemployment rate that's lower than it was since before the pandemic began. But look at the annual inflation rate, 7.9%. That's as of February. We'll get another report tomorrow. That is the highest since 1982, long before I was born. So it's way, way back in the past. And when Americans are trying to look at these two competing measures, right, you know, OK, it's pretty easy to get a job, but it might be hard to actually buy something. How do they actually see the economy going? 
And what we see in the polling is, do Americans feel the economy is good or the economy is bad? The vast majority, 63% in a CBS News YouGov poll yesterday said the economy was bad. Only 31% was good. And even among Democrats in that poll, only about 50% said it was good. So most Americans think the economy is in bad shape. So of those two and three Americans who think the economy is in bad shape, what's the driving factor for that opinion? Yeah, you know, I think there's this whole idea, oh, the White House is just losing the messaging war. You know, if only they knew how good the job situation was. But if you ask Americans, why do you think the economy is bad? It's inflation. The voters know exactly what's going on. They're not stupid. 86% say inflation. Only 17% say unemployment if they believe the economy is in bad shape. So Americans don't think the economy is in bad shape because of unemployment. They believe the economy is in bad shape because of inflation. And that is across the board, Democrats, Republicans, independents. And, you know, if you look back at Gallup polling over the years, you know, Gallup has been asking about the most important problem in the country for forever. Look at this. 17% of Americans said that inflation was the most important problem facing the U.S. in March of 2022. That was the highest it's been since 1985. So again, another long stretch where inflation in the economy quite in bad shape, at least in the voters' minds. Is this high inflation uniquely an American problem? No, it's not. This is kind of the beauty of it, right? You know, we're always focusing on the United States, et cetera, et cetera. But this is actually a worldwide problem. And I I think there's really no place you can see that better in France, right? We know that now Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent president, is facing a runoff against Marine Le Pen, who's a far right candidate. Why is that? Because the number one issue in the French voters' minds, it's inflation. By far the most important issue. It's something that's killing the Democrats here at home, and it's killing Macron's chances abroad, though he's probably still the favorite. But gives Marine Le Pen a decent shot at being able to win that election, which is something unconceivable to someone like me, given the history of the Le Pens in France. And you're going to hear more about that in the next segment. Harry Enten in New York, thank you so much. How Russia's invasion into Ukraine is playing a large role in that major presidential election in France. Stay with us. Also on our world lead, déjà vu in France, French President Emmanuel Macron and his far-right rival Marine Le Pen are headed to a runoff again. Macron, as you might recall, bested Le Pen in a testy runoff contest in 2017. Sunday's results mean voters will have to cast their ballots once more since neither candidate got 50% of the vote. Macron tallied in at almost 28% of the votes, and Le Pen trailed at 23%. CNN's Melissa Bell joins us now live from Paris. And Melissa, this race could have direct implications on Russia and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, absolutely. And France's position in the world and the future of Europe itself, Jake, there's quite a lot at stake. And what we saw in this first round was Emmanuel Macron, on one hand, consolidate his position. He did better than he did in 2017. No one had expected that. But also Marine Le Pen doing the same with his two starkly different views of France, the future. And what we see now is a confirmation, really, Jake, of what began in 2017. The traditional right and left swept aside. In fact, this time, they didn't even get the 5% they needed to be able to claim back the millions they've spent on their campaigns. Instead, 
Uh, Emmanuel Macron facing off against a far-right leader that this time has really achieved a considerable amount of the vote in that first round. And they will now be facing off in a poll that is expected, Jake, to be the tightest since 1974, except this time, rather than the traditional left and right, it's two very different futures of France that are being proposed. They're looking at 49% versus 51% potentially in those polls. And of course, there is all of that at stake and for Europe as well. Well, I have you, Melissa. Over the weekend, Pakistan's parliament ousted their prime minister and voted in the opposition leader. Tell us about that. It's been another moment of political turmoil in Pakistan. It had been thought, Jake, that Imran Khan, you'll remember the popular cricketer that had taken power in 2018, might become the first prime minister in Pakistan to see through his entire five-year term. That did not happen. Uh, The man who'd come in on a ticket of anti-corruption appears to have been bested by troubled economy, double-digit inflation, but also, and perhaps most importantly, Jake apparently falling foul of the country's powerful military and intelligence services. Uh, the opposition saw an opportunity called an opposition, called, called a confidence vote. In the end, the Supreme, Supreme Court allowed that. Imran Khan has lost. He claims there is an anti-American plot against him, something Washington's vehemently denied. And so far, he's provided uh, no proof of. But it is uh, now Shibaz Sharif that takes power. He will now form a government, is expected to rule until next year's election. The question is whether all that political uncertainty, instability really now comes to an end, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Paris, thanks so much. The startling moment that sent crowds in New York's Times Square running for cover. Stay with us. A loud boom sending New Yorkers scrambling in Times Square last night. The culprit was an exploding manhole cover near the busy tourist intersection. The energy company Con Edison says another manhole was also found smoldering. Con Edison blames the terrifying scene on a power cable failure. The New York Fire Department immediately started searching for elevated levels of carbon monoxide, warning in a tweet today, if you see a manhole that is smoking, do not hesitate, call 911 right away. Thankfully, there were no reported injuries. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. The whole two hours, just sitting there waiting for you. I'll be back at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv and from our amazing reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I'll see you in a few hours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.